Hello, I'm John Rossi, a touring drummer with a love of all things animal. When I'm on the road, I visit as many zoos, aquariums. Hey, wait a minute. What's going on? Hey, what's going on there? Hello? Hello? We interrupt your regularly scheduled program to bring you Rossafari Zoo News. News you can use from the world of zoos and conservation. Every week, we bring you breaking news and analysis from around the globe, featuring the animals you love and the people who care for them. And here's your anchorman, John Rossi. Hello, 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 and welcome back to Rossafari Zoo News, your source for all of the news in the world of zoos, aquariums, conservation, and animal weirdness. Uh, I want to thank you all for being here. I know that there are literally hundreds of sources of news about zoos in the pod sphere, and you're choosing to be here with me, and no, wait, no, wait, this is basically the only show that does this. Um, but hey, you're here, and I will take it. Welcome. So for those of you who have been following along on my uh, health journey lately, uh, I'm recording this on Thursday, April 28th, and it'll come out tomorrow on the 29th. And uh, hopefully I will have been cleared. I have a uh, an appointment later today and everything will hopefully be good. And I will be on the road, as most of you are listening to this on the day it comes out, uh, back to home, where I get to be home for a while. Uh, as a matter of fact, I currently don't have any gigs scheduled until uh, the start of June, when I will be performing with Great Balls of Fire at the Dutch Apple Dinner Theater in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. So for all of my peeps back home, both the uh, Philly area and where I grew up in the Harrisburg area, this is a great opportunity to come and see the show. And uh, if you happen to be local to that area, let me know. Maybe you can come see me do the other thing that I do when I don't do this thing that I do. Speaking of which, I wish they'd make a musical of That Thing You Do and that I could play Guy, the drummer. But that's a different story entirely, and none of you care. So uh, let's move on from that. A quick reminder, or if this is your first episode, a quick intro, uh, you can be a part of this episode, well, not this episode as I already recorded it, but of the weekly Zoo News episode simply by sending me stories uh, about zoos and aquariums and conservation and stuff like that. You can tag me in them on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Rossafari. You can tag me in stuff on TikTok at Pod, or you can DM them to me or email them to me, rossafaripod at gmail.com. Thanks. All right, so uh, before we get to it, one other quick thing I wanted to tell y'all was that um, Lego put out a set recently. It's one of their three-in-one sets, and uh, my mommy actually got it for me when I got sick because she's cool like that. And uh, you can make yourself either a tiger, a fish, or a red panda, y'all. There is an official Lego red panda set. So I haven't put it together yet uh, because I figured driving with a completed Lego red panda would probably make it into a less-than-completed Lego Red Panda, but I'm really looking forward to putting it together when I get back home. And I wanted to make sure that all of my animal-loving friends knew that that exists, uh, especially since so many of you are fandas like me. All right, so with all that said, let's get to it. One, two, three, four. Ow, oh, there's a funky monkey, treat kangaroo, or a binturong. It's zoo news, yeah. 
All right, y'all. So we're going to start off talking about something that is zoo-related, but is also relevant to a lot of people that aren't at zoos, and it might even be relevant to you. So uh, listen up. This one's important. Uh, I've talked a lot on here already about the fact that there is a particularly virulent strain of avian influenza that is ripping through the bird population right now. Well, it is a strain that seems to do particularly well in overall cooler weather and also one that is really, really fatal. I've read reports that as many as 50% of birds that get it will die. Um, Some outside ones have said even more than that, but 50% seems like a good number from the various things that I've read. Anyway, we've talked about the fact that a lot of zoos are making sure that their bird collection is not accessible to the public. It actually has less to do with being accessible to the public, although you can track bird poop and stuff that has avian influenza in on your shoes and everything. But the bigger issue is that birds are migrating right now, and as these birds come through that may have avian influenza, uh, they can get into the buildings at zoos. That's right. Even like if you ever look at an aviary or anything like that, you'll oftentimes see birds that are just local birds or migratory birds passing through that go into the building, um, you know, because they heard the other birds or they want food or whatever the reason may be. And it is wildly important for zoos to keep their bird collection separate from those wild birds in case they get avian influenza. Interestingly, though, some off-record conversations with keepers have been a little disheartening to me. This has only been at a few places, but I want to put it out there for my keeper friends that listen. Um, Some of the people who are in charge of making decisions about what to do with the birds seem to have, I'm going to call it disease fatigue, and think that after two plus years of COVID sucking the the life out of our fun and and souls and, you know, also actual life from some people. Um, not only are people burnt out on the COVID thing, which we've seen in a million ways and have discussed on here, and I'm sure you all have, you know, your own experiences with it, but um, are just kind of sick of the whole idea of disease. And so there are actually some people who I think because of the COVID thing, Um, just aren't taking avian influenza as seriously as they should and are debating with their keepers about whether or not all the birds should be off exhibit or not and are trying to kind of come up with excuses to keep some out, which I totally get the desire to have the birds out, both for the people coming to the zoo and for the birds themselves. But at the end of the day, it only takes one tiny little songbird getting into an enclosure to severely risk the life of those birds. So um, if you're at a facility like this and you'd like to talk to me about it, I will not out any facilities for it. Don't worry. Uh, But also, if you are at a facility and you see your birds out, maybe make sure that people are aware of it. The um, migratory patterns of birds are such that some states are getting slammed with this and others aren't. And some areas, I should say, it's not like they follow state boundaries, uh, are really getting hit hard. So, you know, it's possible that there are areas where it's still safe to have birds out. But if you're listening to this and you have eyes on birds at a zoo, it may be worth bringing up to the staff just to make sure everyone's okay, because it seems like some people in charge are too fatigued from COVID to worry about doing the right thing with avian influenza. Now, as a side note to that, another thing that you can do is check 
what your state is saying to do about avian influenza because many states are now recommending that you take down all bird feeders and anything that could bring migratory birds or even just local birds together. It's the whole amassing of different birds that can help spread this disease. And so any common eating and drinking areas, bird baths, bird feeders, stuff like that, are just going to help spread the disease. And uh, I did check with uh, some veterinary uh, professionals and no setting some masks out uh, alongside your bird feeder will not work for them. Uh, birds are actually less likely to mask up than humans, which frankly is saying something. So one of my favorite little factoids about zoos and aquariums is that each year in the United States, more people visit zoos and aquariums than attend all major sporting games and events. That includes the NFL, MLB, hockey, all that stuff combined, even some of the lesser ones like, you know, Formula One and, and soccer and stuff um, that aren't quite as popular here. You put them all together and still more people go to zoos and aquariums every single year. And uh, that's even true if you don't count the fact that I probably make up a huge percentage of the numbers of people that go to those facilities each year because I seem to be at one almost every day. Going along with that factoid is the fact that uh, lately it seems like numbers are rising even more for these amazing facilities. Um, many facilities announced that they topped 1 million visitors in a year for the first time ever last year. We talked about that on previous episodes. Uh, and now another way that it's showing up is that parking has become a major problem at different zoos and aquariums. Um, just last week alone, the Cincinnati Zoo, Brookfield Zoo, Dallas Zoo, Bronx Zoo, and I know I saw some others, but I couldn't find them when I went back, all had to put up social media posts saying that their lots were full and, um, you know, kind of offering some other solutions or recommending that people take public transportation or whatever. Um, also, in a couple of the member groups online, people have been complaining about the fact that they can't park at their zoos on nicer days and weekends. Uh, and it's especially interesting to hear that given that this is still school time. So even though, um, obviously not on weekends, but, uh, you know, on nicer days, it's already a problem and we still don't have the parents that are going to be taking their kids in the summer or whatever. So, um, it's really cool to see attendance happening like that. And some facilities have already started working on new parking structures. Uh, that's actually part of the problem at Cincinnati right now is that they are doing construction to get more parking, but doing construction in the parking area means less parking right now. Um, but I just wanted to mention this in case you are a person who is mad at your zoo for having parking problems. This seems to be a national problem right now. Uh, and also just to point out that it's, it's kind of cool that it seems like in the, quote, post-COVID world, and I say quote because, you know, COVID isn't over, but we're pretending it is, um, it seems like more and more people than ever before are going to zoos and aquariums, and that is a beautiful thing. The Dallas Zoo is working with the Houston Toad Recovery Project in order to help save this critically endangered species, and they recently announced that 2022 seems to be the best year yet for these toads. Over 100 males were observed chorusing last month, and the wild population produced 46 egg strands on their own so far, which is over 161,000 toad eggs. 
These eggs, along with almost 70,000 that the Dallas Zoo team has released this year, have gone a long way to help the species recover from the brink of extinction. It's just really cool that, you know, with some animals like amphibians and stuff, you can get such huge numbers so quickly when you're doing conservation work. I mean, you're talking over 230,000 eggs this year all ready. That's amazing. So congratulations to everyone at the Dallas Zoo and the Houston Toad Recovery Project. The Cincinnati Zoo has closed its Bear Hill exhibit area after the death of the last few bears that lived there. They were all old and it was expected. All was fine with all of this. But it is... um, It's really cool that they have now announced their plans for the area. They are completely remodeling the exhibits and then plan on bringing in two new species in summer of 2023. The area formerly known as Bear Hill will be changed into Bear Ridge, Sea Otter Coast, and a third habitat dedicated to North American backyard wildlife. So that's pretty exciting. There's going to be sea otters with a massive underwater viewing area where visitors can get up close and personal with sea otters, which are so much fun to watch. The upper areas are going to be redesigned for black bears and um, give them a lot more room than some of the bears had at in the previous area, which was built back in uh, 1937. And I actually think the native species exhibits are going to be awesome as well, because a lot of times people actually connect more with animals that they know they could see at their own home than they do with seeing weird endangered species that maybe they didn't even know existed. It's amazing to me how many people will walk right past a binturong to stare at a porcupine that may live in a tree in their yard without them realizing it. But different people connect with different things, and the Cincy Zoo is honoring that in a variety of ways. Nice work, y'all. And while we're talking about the Cincinnati Zoo, uh, they recently helped the Columbus Zoo with something, and this is a pretty cool little story that I'm really excited about. The exciting news is that my good friends Tina and Moose have had babies. Tina and Moose are the Palace's cat couple at the Columbus Zoo, and they recently had three Palace's cat kittens. I'm so excited. Moose is, without a doubt, one of the biggest personalities in any animal I have ever had the pleasure to encounter, and so I'm just so excited about this. And I'm also excited because of the collaboration between zoos that I love. Uh, The Columbus Zoo worked with the Cincinnati Zoo's Center for Conservation and Research of Endangered Wildlife, known as CREW, to help detect Tina's pregnancy. CREW was able to measure hormone levels in Tina's fecal samples and were able to confirm the pregnancy and also provide the Columbus Zoo with an estimated due date for the kittens helping them prepare. As of this uh, podcast release, all three kittens are doing well and hanging out with mom and nursing while Moose gets a break from the rest of them and gets to hang out in his bachelor pad. All is well. The Aquarium Conservation Partnership, which is a network of two dozen public aquariums and aquatic zoos across the United States, including the Maritime Aquarium and the National Aquarium, have all decided that they are going to work to become carbon neutral. 
The first step of the plan, which is just aimed at reducing emissions for each aquarium, will be in place and hopefully successful by spring of 2024 with carbon neutrality for each aquarium to follow afterwards. This is an awesome step and one that I think all zoos and aquariums should look into taking. As a matter of fact, the Cincinnati Zoo, which has already been functioning as a carbon-neutral zoo, just announced that they are now taking steps to become carbon-positive. So that's pretty cool. Um, yeah, it's it's cool to see that that zoos really are conservation organizations that are taking huge steps to conserve the planet that we live on because, uh, you know, saving animals includes saving the earth and the environment and all that stuff. Here's a fun story that I like as much because of uh, the numbers involved and the species as I do because it's a sweet story. The Philadelphia Zoo this week wished a happy anniversary to their Galapagos tortoise named Mommy, who arrived at the zoo 90 years ago. She's lived at the zoo longer than any animal resident, and it is estimated that she is about 97 years old. Now, to go along with that, <laughs> she has been paired with the zoo's oldest resident, Abrazo, a Galapagos tortoise who is 99 years old, for a species survival plan breeding recommendation. This is a species that lives so long that they are still breeding as they creep to 100 years old, and I just love that so much. So here's hoping that Mommy lives up to her name and uh, drops some new babies soon, thanks to the help from Abrazo and the SSP. And those uh, potential tortoises aren't the only new animal that will be calling the Philadelphia Zoo home soon. The Akron Zoo has officially announced that the era of Coco, Lulu, and Penny— their three red panda sisters who have taken the internet by storm is coming to an end because Coco is leaving the Akron Zoo to head to the Philadelphia Zoo. Now, I talked to some keepers who said that Coco might breed with Kumbi, question mark. As of now, I think the SSP is looking into it, but that's not officially why Coco is leaving. In fact, it was Coco herself who requested to be moved from the Akron Zoo. She filled out the form and had it signed in triplicate. Uh, no, wait, that's not what it is. The truth is that the three sisters dynamics have been shifting over the last few months and Coco's behavior has indicated that uh, she was not interested in staying with her sisters. Because of this, the zoo was more than happy to accommodate, reached out to the SSP, and uh, everybody worked together to find a new happy home for Coco. And while I know that the Akron Zoo fans are going to miss Coco like crazy, uh, I get to go to the Philly Zoo a lot. I'm a member there, y'all. So uh, hopefully we'll be able to get some really good pictures of Coco up on the Safari Instagram in the future. Yay for that. Congratulations are in order this week to SeaWorld. Uh, it turns out that the SeaWorld Florida Coral Rescue Center has produced hundreds of new offspring of the rough cactus coral. This is the first documented occurrence of reproduction of this particular coral 
inhuman care ever. And this is a really big deal. As I'm sure you all know from the Moat Marine Lab episode talking about corals or some of our recent um, aquarium episodes where the topics come up, I'm sure you know that uh, coral bleaching is a major problem right now and there are a lot of coral species that really need our help. So congratulations to SeaWorld for being the first to uh, ever get reproduction from this particular species. Very cool. And while we're on the subject of things that are very cool, I have known about this for such a long time, and I'm so excited that it's finally public knowledge so I can tell y'all. Our friends at the Ecotarium in Worcester, Mass., have decided to pursue AZA accreditation. Um, They actually have a really cool plan there, and um, if you don't remember, uh, there is a great episode from the Ecotarium uh, featuring my my good friend, Kelsey Castro-Giovanni, and it was way back when we recorded that that I first heard about this plan, but, um, you know, not saying I heard it from Kelsey in case any of her bosses are listening. Anyway, um, part of this is that they are hoping to uh, use space on the grounds for new large animal habitats such as bears, wolves, and coyotes. They're still going to focus on the native fauna that live in that area, but there's also a plan to uh, look into maybe some of the stuff that used to live there, which can get kind of interesting when you get into um, kind of the modern relatives of animals that used to live there. Uh, I, I, I... Whoever it was that I talked to um, about this was very excited and told me some things that that I think are going to be really cool. So uh, good luck in your quest for accreditation, Ecotarium, and um, I'm proud of y'all. This is very cool. Some uh, guests at the London Zoo got to have a really cool experience recently when Hetty, a pregnant porcupine, decided to leave her den and give birth on exhibit. Guests were shocked to see this little porcupine give birth to a beautiful porcupette that has since been named Hershey outside and again in front of the public. Kind of surprising, but of course, the zoo lets the the pregnant mother decide where it's going to give birth, and that's what Hetty decided to do. Apparently, a lot of people who got to see this were really excited, and um, a lot of them asked uh, the keepers some, quote, not-so-subtle questions about porcupine quills and, uh, you know— vaginal birth. So um turns out they're soft at birth before quickly hardening, so labor was not as painful as some of the people watching thought. But uh yeah, I just think it's really cool that some people got to see that. Maybe I should start spending more time at zoos so I could see porcupines be born too. Wait, is it possible for me to spend more time at zoos? I And now we go from a happy birth to a sad death. Steve Ross, the director of the Lincoln Park Zoo Center for Apes, passed away unexpectedly recently. He was 52 years old. Along with being the director for the Center for Apes at Lincoln Park Zoo, Steve was a well-respected primatologist and was also married to Megan Ross, who last year was appointed the zoo's president and CEO, the first woman to serve in that role. Along with working at the zoo, Steve was uh, involved in leading efforts to conserve chimpanzees and gorillas in the Republic of Congo through his work with Project Chimp Care. He also served for more than 15 years on the board of directors of Chimp Haven, a chimpanzee sanctuary based in Louisiana. 
Condolences to his family and everyone at Lincoln Park Zoo and that was touched by Steve Ross's life. As an update to a story from last week, um, Ali Berry is the name of the marine mammal trainer at Miami Seaquarium who was involved in an accident involving a dolphin under her care that uh, attacked her. Both Seaquarium and Allie herself have released statements about the incident, which I will now read to you. First, the one from Seaquarium. While demonstrating a practiced behavior as part of the Flipper Show on April 9th, a trainer accidentally scratched the dolphin Sundance with her hand. This was undoubtedly painful to Sundance, who reacted by breaking away from the routine and swimming towards and striking the trainer. Both Sundance and the trainer are recovering well. And then we have the statement from Allie, which says, Hi, everyone. First off, I am doing really well and have been taking the time to allow my body to heal. I want to thank everyone who has reached out and wished me a speedy recovery, kept me in their prayers, or just made sure I was okay. You do not know how much it has meant to me. Second, I really want to say thank you for all the kind words you all shared with me. All I want to do in this life is show people how amazing dolphins are and hope that you fall in love with them just as much as I have. I also hope that these amazing animals may inspire you to help protect their wild counterparts, the ocean, and this pretty, beautiful planet. Finally, what got posted all over the world was a freak incident. I don't blame myself, any of the trainers, or Sundance for what happened. I'm not afraid to get back in the water, nor am I afraid to work with Sundance again. Every single moment I get to work alongside those animals is a blessing, and I wouldn't change it for the world. Thank you all again, and if you want to come be inspired by some pretty amazing animals, you know where to find me. I just really love both of those statements, uh, especially Allie's. She seems like a, a pretty amazing trainer, and um, I, I hope that uh, I hope that she does well in her recovery and gets to be spending time with Sundance again real soon. And I know that I mentioned in the previous episode that I've, I've heard some some good and bad things about Seaquarium and that I haven't really formulated an opinion yet. And uh, I'm working on it, but I will tell you this. Even at many facilities that are maybe not great, and again, I'm not saying Seaquarium is or isn't, I truly don't know, but there are a lot of keepers that are dedicated to their animals and care about them and work hard to give them the best lives possible, and I don't know Allie, but from the statement, it seems like she's one of them. So uh, regardless of your thoughts on Seaquarium, um, and a lot of you have shared your thoughts with me and, and even sent me some resources, and I super appreciate it, and I am going to get to them, I promise, but um, regardless of your thoughts... You know, it seems like Allie was doing the right thing here, and uh, these things happen. We all know it. We've all had incidents happen with animals in our care, even if it's just a dog or whatever. And uh, yeah, I'm just glad that it seems like all living creatures involved with this incident are okay. And that brings us to... Conservation! Conservation! News time! Oh yeah! All right. So you remember how last week I started off by saying that uh, almost every week it seems like there's some news about the Red Wolf and sometimes it's good and sometimes it's bad and last week was sad. Well, this week there's news about the Red Wolf and it's good. The Red Wolf Project and the Red Wolf Recovery Program have officially announced that a new litter of six wild red wolf pups has been 
Born. This is the first Wildborn litter of Red Wolves since 2018 and is a huge deal. All six pups seem to be doing well at this time and hopefully will uh, continue to do so and go on out to become, you know, the future of their species in the wild. This is so cool. A huge congratulations is in order for my friend and one of the people who edits the writing I do for Red Panda Network and makes me so much better, Sonam Lama. Sonam Lama has officially become the second person to win a 2022 Whitley Award. The Whitley Awards are held annually by the Whitley Fund for Nature to recognize and celebrate effective grassroots conservation leaders across the global south. Sonam works with Red Panda Network in Nepal, where he has been with them since the very beginning of the organization. He started by creating a library in his village and is now implementing conservation programs throughout the range of Red Pandas in Nepal. He has trained 100 people to help restore red panda habitat throughout Nepal and is also strengthening ecotourism in the region to provide income for the local population. The prize for the Whitley Fund for Nature is a 40,000-pound grant, and Sonam plans on using this money to address the looming threats of habitat fragmentation and illegal trade and poaching of red pandas through reforestation campaigns that will engage and employ rural communities, especially women and youth, hoping to provide livelihood support through forest conservation nurseries and local green jobs with tree planting campaigns. Sonam is awesome and always brings such an intelligent uh, focus to to my writing projects. And the work he does with Red Panda Network is just incredible. Congratulations, man. This is so well-deserved. And back in the States, the world's largest wildlife overpass has officially broken ground in California. Now, we've talked about wildlife overpasses and underpasses a lot, and y'all know I am a huge fan of this concept. This is actually an overpass that will go over 10 lanes of traffic, and uh, it's really going to help these animals in that area avoid, you know, huge accidents with uh, cars, which is, you know, this is another one of those types of things where I think this is such an obvious and easy to sell conservation idea. Because even if you don't love the idea of spending money on animal conservation, and when I say you, I obviously don't mean my listeners, because why would you be here if that's how you felt? But people in general, you know, they're not super into it. We, we can all understand the issues that happen when you're driving and you hit an animal. I mean, y'all, I live in Pennsylvania, and sometimes I feel like there are more deer on the turnpike than there are cars, okay? I have two cars, and both of them right now are, are just recently recovered from damage because of deer. One, one that I hit and one that was kind of a freak thing where its head was laying on the road, and I don't know, I don't want to get into it all. Anyway, the point is that um, this is the kind of thing that it's really easy to sell people on because even if they don't give a wet slap about animals, people don't want their cars destroyed. So uh, I think that there should be a bigger push for, for more of this. I think that wildlife overpasses and underpasses are brilliant and wonderful. And it has been 
proven that they work time and again. And so, uh, yeah, if you're looking for a way to impact your local animal community, maybe look into a way to get some wildlife overpasses and underpasses happening. Cool. Texas game wardens recently captured 381 whole shark fins and an additional 29.2 pounds of frozen shark fins inside of a restaurant's freezer. The restaurant has not been named yet, but there is a case pending against the restaurant and their owners, and all shark fins were seized as evidence. One of my favorite little parts of this story, because really I hate most of it, is that uh, there was actually a canine team that performed the inspection and found the shark fins. So good job, puppies. Yes, yes, a good puppy. Yes, it is. You did such a good job. Yay. Um, while I, I love scent detection dogs, obviously, and, and we've talked about them on here a lot, um, I do have to point out that, you know, shark fins are a problem and they are they are illegal. And we've talked a lot about um, the laws that are being passed still to this day to help eliminate this threat to uh, a very awesome and misunderstood species. So great, great work to everyone involved in this capture. Especially the puppies. Yes. Yes, you are. You're just good puppies. Yes, you are. The Barabag people of Tanzania are one of the few tribes that actually shares their land with lions. And up until recently, the tribe would track and kill lions that posed a threat to their community. But with populations of the big cat dwindling, a group of conservationists have started working with the Barabag warriors to protect the lions instead of to hunt them. A conservation organization known as Lion Landscapes, which works in Ruaha, Kenya, and Zambia to protect lions, have started working to recruit the Barabag warriors to be lion defenders. These warriors survey the border areas early in the morning for traces and tracks of lions so as to inform herders of the safest grazing areas. That way, there will be a minimization of lion-human conflict. While some tribes' people are resistant to this change, many really love the idea, especially given the fact that lions create a lot of ecotourism to the Ruaha National Park and thus brings in money and also endears the community to the lions when they're not in direct conflict. Uh, apparently, a lot of the tribe's people feel a sense of ownership and get to understand the right reasons why uh, they are protecting the lions over there, which is really important. Again, this is the type of conservation thing that I love because not only is it saving animals, but it's providing jobs to a community and education to a community and uh, kind of making them reevaluate how they look at the animal that they might be in conflict with. So much of conservation is just getting the local population on board and helping them out. And uh, this is just another great example of that. I love it. And now we head off to... It's time for other news. It's time for other news. Hey, now, right now, right now, it's time. It's time for other news. Hey, it's a segue to the podcast. So, one of those fun animal facts that it seems like everybody knows is that certain species of spiders will um, 
be beheaded, well, the males will be beheaded after copulating with the female. So it ends up being the last thing that they ever do. Well, a new study of the orb-weaving spider Philippinella prominens have decided to take a stand, or, to be more accurate, to take a leap. It turns out that this spider, when it has completed mating with a female, quickly launches itself away using a mechanism that has not been seen by humans before. The eight-legged creatures use a joint in their first pair of legs to immediately push off the female in a split-second action, flinging themselves away from their partners at speeds clocked up to 88 centimeters per second. The study suggests the female spiders may even judge the male's suitability as a mate based on its ability to pull this move off. And I guess if the spider doesn't pull the move off, the female pulls its head off? And, and that is real. In the study, any of the male spiders that did not get away were eaten. As a matter of fact, in order to properly complete the study, there were times that the researchers needed to prevent the spiders from catapulting away, and all of those males were eaten as well, even though they technically did the neat little firing off the female thing. So, like, good job not dying, little dudes. Also, I get that it's, you know, a biological thing and not quite, well, I'm, I'm anthropomorphizing as I say this, but I've, I've always found it kind of amusing that male spiders will have sex knowing, uh, by all indications, they, they seem to be aware, and this study actually helps prove that, uh, that they're going to be eaten afterwards. And they're still like, ooh, baby, gotta, gotta get me that. Again, I'm anthropomorphizing and having fun here, but uh, I do find that amusing. Hey, uh, Tiffany James, what would you call that? Taking horny to a new level. Makes sense. And last but not least this week, it appears as though a man, a, quote, transient white male, uh, has stolen a desert tortoise from a home in Glendale, California, and has not yet been found. There is a photograph, I'm guessing from a security camera, of the man walking away with the tortoise, and the tortoise is a desert tortoise that is approximately 14 inches long, 10 inches wide, 30 pounds, with yellow eyes, a gray-brown shell, and the name of Bob, although I doubt the tortoise responds to its name, but maybe, I don't know. I'm a little confused by this whole thing, as desert tortoises themselves are critically endangered and illegal to own. But, uh, hey, whatever, maybe it was grandfathered in, maybe there's a reason they have it, you know, I'm not here to judge. I would be devastated if an animal that I loved was kidnapped. So, um, hopefully Bob's doing okay, and they catch this guy, and Bob is returned to them, and if you have any information, let me know, and I'll give you a number that you can call to share your information about a stolen tortoise with the authorities, but that seems unlikely. But yeah, let me know if you know. Thanks. Oh, animal, oh, animal, animal holidays, animal, oh, animal, animal holidays, hey! All right, so this episode is dropping as we switch from April to May, so a quick reminder that uh, April is Ape Awareness Month and National Frog Month, and May is National Lake Cleanup Month and National Duckling Month. Zoe's parents actually have two ducks that, that live here where I've been recuperating, and uh, they're not ducklings, but um, they're really cool, and I really enjoy seeing them when I look outside during the day. So just, just thought you'd all like to know that. 
Anyway, so this episode drops on Friday the 29th, which is Arbor Day. So go get some trees and plant them and stuff. And then April 30th is one of those days. It is Adopt a Shelter Pet Day, National Go Birding Day, Save the Frogs Day, and World Veterinary Day. Let's maybe split those up next year, guys. But hey, whatever. And then May starts. The first week of May is Amphibian Week. And May 1st is Save the Rhino Day. The second is World Tuna Day. And the third is Wild Koala Day. And finally, on the 5th, you can celebrate Happy Bears Day. And those are your animal holidays for the week. And there you have it, folks, the last episode of Rossafari Zoo News ever until we come back next week. But that's May, so that's like a whole different month. I don't know. I'm goofy. Anyway, I would like to say thanks to Laura Shank, my Red Panda level patron, and to the following people who contributed stories to me this week. Anya Keen, Colleen Lenahan, Kim Cooley, Sue Isbell, Kristen Khalil, Danny Steele, Peter Oilo, and Dylan Hoy. Thank you all so very much for sharing and caring. And remember, friends, the words Newsy Credits Backwards are Steiderk Yeswen. The Rossafari Podcast is produced, hosted, and engineered by John Rossi. Editing and fact-checking by John and Dr. Zoe Vesley-Gross. Our theme song is Sevens by Nathan Burke, performed by Nathan and John. Interrupting John theme and additional voices by Taylor Isaac Gray. You can reach John directly on Instagram and Facebook at Rossafari or by email at rossafaripod at gmail.com. Rossafari is part of the Daydreamer Media Network. Now, stop listening to me and go visit a zoo.